0: Hello there. My name is Dan Kilbride. I'm the host of New Books in American Studies, and I'm also the professor of history and chair of the history department at John Carroll University outside of Cleveland, Ohio. And I'm very excited, uh, that's not an exaggeration, to be joined today by Ed Baptist. He is a professor of history at Cornell University, teaches history at Cornell University. Uh, He's the author uh, previously of a terrific book called Creating an Old South, which is about The Plantation Frontier in Antebellum, Florida, which is published by the University of North Carolina Press. And he's here today to discuss his brand spanking new book, The Half Has Never Been Told Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism, which has been published by Basic Books. Ed Baptist, welcome to New Books in American
1: Studies. Thanks for having me, Dan.
0: So this is a book about Uh, slavery in the United States, and I'm going to just give the very briefest of introductions here to say that I don't think it's any exaggeration, and I I am biased, I admit, but I'm right about this, that uh, the literature on American slavery has been the most exciting and dynamic uh, uh, theme in American historical writing, at least for the past 30, maybe 40 years, and it's amazing how sustained that uh, excitement and dynamism has become. You might think that uh, a subject that has been uh, the focus of so much study for such a long time might become musty and old, yet uh, historians uh, still manage to find new and exciting things about it. It it is really a wonderful literature, and I think this book, uh, even more remarkably, manages to say a lot of new and exciting things about this. So uh, Ed, tell us about yourself and the path that brought you to this book. Uh,
1: there are of course so many ways to to answer that question and so many paths, but, but I think just to um, uh, hit the first one first, uh, the question about myself is that I grew up in Durham, North Carolina uh, in an era, uh, the 1970s and 1980s when uh, at least um and fits and starts, uh, the U.S. The US uh, education system was was trying to process of integration. And so uh, although I'm white, I ended up in a lot of schools that were majority black uh, with a lot of teachers that were African-American. And what I began to notice uh, at, at, as a back at a fairly early age was that there was a considerable difference in the ways that uh, uh, the sort of white media and um, the larger uh, established point of view of the United States Told the history of slavery as po- as opposed to what I would hear uh, from my African American teachers, or uh, what I might hear once we got into some of the the stories that they told in class about people like Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman. You know, even even though there was an ongoing attempt to incorporate those stories uh, in academia at that time, although I didn't necessarily know when I was in let's say third grade, uh, there was still uh, even as I got a little older, went to college and grad school, and so on, and I dug into um, a lot of the the white-authored histories, even the histories of slavery. There were there were still differences between that that more popular, uh, I think, deeper rooted story of slavery that I had been hearing even as a child, and the larger uh, um, academic story that was being told.
0: Mm-hmm. It's. I mentioned in my introduction that you know, the literature on slavery is getting. You know, it's, it's getting a little old. Uh, it, it, there was a point, of course, in American historical literature when slavery the story wasn't told at all. Uh, you mentioned in your introduction about you know American history textbooks. Even today, uh, slavery gets maybe twenty five pages. It's covered. You know, tends to be like the eighteen fifties. It's like the snapshot. Of slavery, and that's pretty much all you need to know. Um, and it struck me that this book reminds me a little bit of a much older book in its emphasis on uh, the the violence uh, of slavery and, and and the suffering of enslaved people, and that is uh, Kenneth Stamps' mm-hmm. Peculiar Institution. Um, and I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about um, how s- literature on slavery has evolved over the past. Twenty or thirty years, and what the biggest influences on you, uh, you know, in, in historical literature as, as you approach this book?
1: Yeah, I, I think I think that's a uh, interesting comparison because as I um, prepared to write this book, and and I, I should say the first book you mentioned um, was a, a community study of a a, a frontier area uh, of the South, and and writing that book is what. Was sort of the direct cause of of um, uh, the direct impetus that pushed me into into deciding that what I needed to do next was write a history of the expansion of slavery uh, across multiple frontiers and multiple decades, multiple states of the South. But as I as I reviewed the uh, the literature in in preparation for this new book, uh, what what I did realize is that there were a couple of older books that that seemed to uh, have been a, a little bit forgotten uh, as various currents of of um, uh, conflict and debate and so on in American society pushed them to the side, uh, but but which did seem to have a lot to say that, that had perhaps been forgotten, and, and Stamp was certainly one of them. Um, Stamp did write about um, violence a lot more than some of the uh, other historians who followed them, or a lot more directly and explicitly and he did write actually surprisingly more about uh things like the domestic slave trade mm-hmm. which occupied a much smaller share of attention in the writing of the 1960s and 70s and 80s about slavery that writing was less concerned with uh arguing and uh, establishing that that slavery was a a violent process of exploitation and much more concerned with uh arguing that uh enslaved african americans had created uh, a culture that uh could in terms of its the psychological um, um cushioning and and um sustenance it could provide to african americans that that it was able to withstand the the impact of of the kind of violence and uh exploitation that that I suppose as historians took as as a given mm mm-hmm. Uh, in the wake of those so-called community studies, historians began to spend a little bit more time uh, talking about things like divisions in the slave community or um, change over time in some cases uh, or increasingly the, the slave trade. And you see that in books by Michael T- Tadman and Walter Johnson that began to appear in the 1990s and early 2000s. So that's sort of what historiographically lit up. Uh, to this book, but I think I think in a, a different sense. Um, for me personally, the the first book I wrote was was about um, was about the South, uh, and it was about the interplay between um, white and and black, and rich and poor, uh, frontier and older states, and it probably had a lot to do with uh, with my family of origin uh, in that sense, and, and trying to figure out how their history fit mm-hmm. into the larger history of the South but but this book is is much more about how uh the history of the south fits in into i think the history of the broader united states the right. world in fact and you
0: know one of the things that might surprise uh anybody at all who's been paying even a little bit of attention to Uh, histories of the old South and slavery is the subtitle and that is slavery and the making of American capitalism. Uh, You know, to make a very long story short uh, most people do not associate slavery with capitalism and and, and some, many people see them as as opposites. How, you know, we'll we'll elaborate on this later, but how do you see slavery as a capitalist enterprise? And, you know, briefly how do, do you think it contributed to the growth of the United States in the 19th century and beyond?
1: Yeah, I mean <laughs> that's 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 a big, a big one. That's I know, a big one. I <laughs> I, I wrote a, a a book about that. In fact, <laughs> but let me try to put a, a couple of key points in, into an answer. Uh, I think that um, we could we could talk in a little bit about why historians stopped talking about capitalism, which they did for a long time, and they're starting to talk about it much more explicitly Mm -hmm. now Um, but even now a lot of what um, uh, historians are saying about capitalism is is still pretty limited it doesn't put together uh, the production distribution and consumption and and financialization sides of capitalism all of those are part of the equation of the the social and intellectual and conceptual system that has in the world since the 1700s. I mean, we live very, very differently, uh, not just from people a generation ago because of uh, ongoing, tremendous, innovative economic and technological change that we call capitalism, but wildly differently from the way people lived in 1750 and even the most developed Mm -hmm. societies in the world. And uh, in fact, people in 1750, on the other hand, typically lived in a state much more similar to those in 5000 B.C. than we are to to the way people lived in 1750. So so this this is a massive, massive change in human history. And one of the things I argue in the book is that uh, American slavery, especially as it develops after the revolution, is tremendously significant to that change. And we haven't typically seen American slavery as as a major part of that change. And sometimes we've seen its growth and development uh in, in the cotton south as antithetical to that change, is sort of a, mm-hmm. a parking break that was um keeping the US from fully committing uh to capitalist development. And that's that's partly because there was a big political conflict over slavery and and northern opponents of slavery decided that they were the true capitalists and the true uh modern people and and that slavery was a sort of backward thing. But if you actually look at, at the the way slavery worked, uh and then so you look at the way it worked, and then you also look at its, let's say, contribution to to broader capitalism. Mm-hmm. You see that it is deeply, deeply um, capitalist in a lot of important ways. Uh, so one of the things I discovered in the first book, it's its sort of a small part of the first book, and I couldn't actually get people to pay much attention to this at the time, but, um, but later for reasons I'll explain, they, they got much more interested. One of the things I, I, I realized was that, um, first of all, expanding slavery – uh, which was a, a process that, that continued from the 90s right up until 1860, and the desire to expand slavery was actually the cause, the proximate cause of the Civil War. Um, expanding slavery was expensive for the uh, the planters, or as I often call them, entrepreneurs who wanted to do it. Um, a young enslaved man cost generally around $1,000, which in terms of the amount of um, wage labor that could buy you, um, uh, was was something uh, along the order of two hundred and twenty two hundred fifty thousand dollars and twenty fourteen dollars so this is very expensive investment, about the same as a house in in many parts of the u s today. Mm-hmm. So how did slave owners do this well um, you know they already had property and so they had collateral, but they needed a cash flow in order to actually uh, and often a cash flow that was bigger than what they were getting from their crops. Uh, in order to make that big capital investment. And it turns out that what they did was they went to big urban centers like London and Amsterdam and Hamburg and New York Boston to get that money. Uh, And in fact, uh, in the 1830s, what they got really good at was creating innovative new financial products that are really very similar to some of the the things that were done that have been done on Wall Street since the 1980s. Everything old comes Hmm. new again. (laughs) Uh, They, uh, in fact, um, created a process in which they essentially securitized enslaved people uh, and sold bonds uh, on those worldwide financial markets to raise money, which then they pumped back into their own accounts uh, to to buy more slaves. Uh, In return, the people who bought the bonds got essentially a slice of the income from individual slaves. Now, people weren't interested. Historians were not interested in hearing about this in the 1990s and early 2000s. But after very similar operation, except done with houses instead of slaves, imploded and dragged down the whole world economy with it in 2008. <laughs> Suddenly, people were much more interested in this. So, it, it turns out that that slavery was financially uh, deeply embedded in the all of the circuits of of um, credit that flowed uh, around the Western world in the early 1800s, and they were embedded in ways that are recognizably identical in, in in many of its key points to the way that credit works in today's capitalist economy. Uh, mm-hmm. It didn't flow as quickly. Information didn't flow as quickly, but the processes were very similar. Enslavers were constantly borrowing uh, in order to expand their operations. Uh, and on the other hand, on the production side, we might think that what was going on in the cotton fields was very different from, from what we see uh, as the essential um, capitalist production function of wage labor. That's what Karl Marx said, was the, the be-all and end-all of capitalist production. And people have tended to to um, uh, follow that as, as a kind of dogma. But what's significant about wage labor for, um, not just for Marx, but for Adam Smith uh, and people from all over the political spectrum who look at, at capitalism, uh, what's significant about wage labor systems is that they build in uh, incentives for innovation, uh, mm-hmm. which continually produces more product with the same amount of labor, thus expanding uh, the amount of goods that are available. And this this breaks us out of the old bottlenecks of of uh, old agricultural societies, which changed very, very slowly and usually could not accumulate too much to protect um, s- societies uh, from starvation, uh, much less from uh, falling into Um, I don't know, a a sort of um, a sort of stasis uh, where where they weren't expanding, weren't changing technologically. So what's what's interesting is that what actually happens as enslavers expand their cotton operations uh, and as they move large numbers of slaves into places like Mississippi and Alabama is that they have incentives to produce more cotton all the time. Uh, The world market for cotton is growing uh, because of the industrial revolution that's taking place in Britain. Uh, and all they have to do is to figure out how to make more cotton. They have two two problems. Um, the first is one of processing. It's hard to get the seeds out of cotton fibers. Mm. We know all about the cotton gin. We know that that's, that's what happened. They have a mechanical solution. But picking is the other bottleneck. And in 1800, most people could pick uh, at most about 40, 45 pounds a day. Picking is really hard, and no mechanical solution was invented until the 1930s. What slave owners figure out to do is to create incentives for cotton picking. And this isn't by paying more, this is by measuring more and whipping more. So they set individual incentives, and you can see this uh, very, very clearly in, in the, the film 12 Years a Slave, actually. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, in fact, um, Steve McQueen uh, and the 12 Years a Slave crew do a better job of depicting that. Uh, than virtually any historian. Hmm. So um, everybody has an individual quota. If they don't make the quota, uh, if their bag is weighed at the end of the day and they haven't made the quota, they're whipped. And sometimes it's very explicitly a kind of um, a very uh, uh, capitalist accounting. Okay, you're five pounds short. And enslaver told Israel Campbell when he was learning how to pick cotton in Mississippi in, in the uh, late 1820s, you're five pounds short, and so I'm, you owe me a debt and I'm going to exact repayment in the form of five lashes, one pound short, one more lash. And these, these were pretty brutal whips that were being used. So people learn how to pick to their quota. And what enslavers then do is raise the quota. <laughs> and over time, um, primarily, I would argue, because of this process of measuring uh, and then raising of the quota, what happens is that enslaved people pick faster. faster, So that by 1860, the average enslaved person is picking about uh, three or four t- times faster than the average enslaved person in 1800. And this is tremendous. Uh, they're producing uh, this absolutely crucial product for the Industrial Revolution four times uh, as fast as they did in 1800. Uh, and although the price of slaves goes up, uh, it doesn't go up that fast in real dollars.
0: Uh yeah you you referenced uh, Steve McQueen's movie and, and anybody who's read uh Solomon Northup's account you know when when he arrives on a cotton plantation he is absolutely stunned with the speed with which is the, the slaves pick cotton he's he, he simply can't believe
1: yeah, it yeah and he can't keep up uh, no he can't and it's very hard for him to adapt and in fact he never really does and this is mm-hmm. part of why uh the people that enslavers on the cotton frontier wanted to buy were young men and women uh ranged from preteens up to at most in the early 20s that's when prices were highest and a big part of it was because uh they they were still malleable enough uh to learn how to pick at the kind of speeds that that were demanded it's hard to learn after that after that kind of age
0: yeah um when I, I I do want to get into the you know the nitty gritty of the book, and one of the interesting things that I think that readers will find about this book is that uh, it it really focuses on a period of slavery that especially textbooks don't really focus on, and that is that I mentioned in the introduction that if you read an American history textbook, you tend to get this sort of snapshot of slavery that focuses on the 1850s, the very last decade of slavery. But you spend a lot of time on the late 18th and early 19th centuries, uh, especially t- to discuss the, uh, you know, the, the, the interstate slave trade. Um, one of the things uh, you, you argue in the early part of the book is that, you know, y- you observe that in the very early years of its history, the United States was actually in a fairly precarious geopolitical situation. It wasn't very united. There wasn't a lot of things that tied Americans together. And you argue that slavery's expansion actually helped forge the United States together. Uh, How did it do that?
1: Well, first of all, um, agreeing to let slavery expand is, is the price of union at the constitutional convention, uh, South Carolina and Georgia, and maybe North Carolina, uh, at least said they were willing to walk if slavery was not going to be allowed to expand. Mm -hmm. Uh, And right there, uh, In 1787, the major focus is the international slave trade. They want that to continue. Uh, But I also think that uh, allowing it to expand into other territories is is a part of the subtext there. Uh, There are debates already in the Continental Congress about that. And South Carolina, Georgia, and North Carolina, again, have successfully blocked, for instance, provisions that might have uh, kept slavery from expanding into uh, what is today Tennessee and, and Mississippi and Alabama. And so, so it's literally the political price of the union in that sense. But, but slavery's expansion and its ability to start bringing in revenue uh, for, uh, for the American economy, and this is a cash-poor economy, an economy that needs the ability to, uh, to trade overseas, to buy things from overseas, to bring in investments from overseas, but doesn't have much to sell, Slavery's expansion gives that economy something to sell. It gives it products uh, that are coming onto the international market at exactly the right time, uh, in particular cotton in the 1790s and uh, and then the first decades of the 19th century. So it fuels all kinds of other development, and of course it, it fuels the further development of slavery. And then finally, um, slavery helps to create these um, internal financial networks that bind the interests of wealthy people in the Northeast to the interests of wealthy people in the Southeast and increasingly the Southwest, and helps to produce a, um, a class that has a lot invested in the future unity of the United States. And that, in a sense, is exactly what uh, James Madison and Alexander Hamilton uh, were arguing uh, the U.S. needed uh, in in the Federalist Papers, and then uh, for Hamilton in his establishment of a, a kind of a formal national financial system, uh, mm-hmm. a formal set of networks focused around the first uh, Bank of the United States. But this other set of financial networks, which which certainly you know uses the uh, the first National Bank and certainly we use the second Bank of the United States as well, they also have the same effect of producing a national elite. Uh, that is dependent uh, on keeping the issue of slavery um, uh, suppressed as as an issue of conflict, uh, and on allowing slavery to expand further westward.
0: You uh, also observe that uh, you know the Haitian Revolution, which is I think beginning to get a lot more attention in you know, sort of conventional U.S. history textbooks and, and classes. Um, you know, on the one hand, the Haitian Revolution kind of uh, sounds the death knell to, you know, one kind of slavery, but it also helps as sort of the midwife to a new kind of slavery in the United States. Uh, how did the Haitian Revolution contribute to this sort of a, a new frontier for slavery in the southwestern United States?
1: Well, um, you know, first first of all, in in a you know in a in a very mechanical sense i mean a very in a very clear way uh what it it does is it it forces Napoleon to sell the Louisiana territory to the United States, and this allows the u s to expand in ways that simply wouldn't have been possible if it didn't control the Mississippi River and its outlet uh Napoleon had dreams of a a American empire that's quite clear he invested. Uh, tens of thousands of troops in reconquering uh, Saint Domingue um, from from the rebels who had who had come to control it by the 1790s, uh, and it's clear that he wanted to reinstitute slavery there, but he fails in doing so because of the resistance of of the Haitian people, and so he's forced to abandon his plans and and do something that he had been previously unwilling to do, which is sell New Orleans and the Louisiana Territory. So that's absolutely necessary uh, for the. Of this continental kind of slavery, but the Haitian Revolution also convinces uh, European powers and and perhaps um, the U.S. as well to abandon the um, international slave trade uh, to to uh, make it illegal and make its um, um, make its banning be a kind of a a sign of, of civilized nationhood. So the U.S. bans it and Britain bans it, and then Britain begins to put a lot of pressure on other uh, nations, um, Spain and Portugal and, and so on, to ban it. And it takes a long time to do it, and even then it continues. Um, but but what this does is it it uh, ensures, and this is not the purpose of, of banning the slave trade, but it but it ensures that it's going to be very hard for any other nation to... Or any colony to compete with us as a producer of cotton, because slave-produced cotton was more efficient in the early 1800s than cotton uh, produced by free people. Uh, and unlike uh, the British islands uh, or the Spanish colonies, uh, U.S. slavery by 1800 had become very successful at reproducing itself, uh, at growing because of internal natural growth. Um without the slave trade, British colonies were not going to be able to compete with uh, American production of cotton.
0: You, you focus uh, in the early years of, of the 19th century and you, the, the way you talk about the expansion of the cotton frontier and uh, as you describe, instead of using the word planners, you t- as you said, you tend to use the word entrepreneurs. It, it's almost like a frenzy. Of expansion and growth, uh, and at, at one point in in the book, where you, where you talk about, you know, the way we usually think about capitalism as this, uh, you know it's very rational system. You know, people make choices based on their self interest. Uh, but you uh, argue in some ways that uh, this is a lot of. It's almost like gambling mm-hmm. that uh, these entrepreneurs, as they're envisioning this cotton empire uh they're not necessarily making rational choices they're they 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 have these visions that they are sort of gambling on and uh how how did entrepreneurs you know after eight, about 1815 how did they successfully organize this massive expansion of cotton cultivation
1: yeah i don't think any of us who lived through the 1980s in the 1990s and the 2000s can, can really with a straight, that, that, uh, that capitalism, especially in a sort of a boom era is, is really fully rational. I, I mean, clearly people acting in their own, um, self-interest as they perceive it. And, uh, and at the same time, they're also being driven, um, by a lot of emotional needs and emotional desires. And in the case of, um, People who have uh, who have power uh, in a certain in a given situation uh, who have a sense uh, that they're going to be able to bend um, they're going to be able to bend economic exchanges to their own benefit that they're going to be able to bend the labor of other people to their own benefit. Uh, I I think um, I think in those cases they're able to make their more emotional. Emotionally driven vision, visions, their uh, their desires, if you will, uh, they're going to make those things into reality, at least for a little while. And of course, whether that's in one's own best interest over the long run—that's that's a different question. Um, but sometimes it does work out for those guys. Uh, in the specific case of uh, the U.S. South after the after 1815, I mean. Um, Slave owners have, by that point, started to figure out a system that will allow them to extract more cotton every year from the same number of enslaved people. They're able uh, to turn uh, enslaved people into collateral for for loans uh, with increasingly more exotic forms of credit. Um, they 're able to do that because the cotton that those enslaved people is so important to the world economy and is such an important source of all kinds of profit, including mm-hmm. the profit of those who lend and, and those who speculate on the securities that enslavers create and then and then finally, the rules of the rules of engagement in u s politics are set up in such a way that slave owners have outsized influence they have outsized influence in mm-hmm. their own communities mm-hmm. uh, but they also have out- influence on the national stage i mean i have to sit down and i'm always forgetting the exact figure uh of how many u.s presidents before lincoln uh was the 13th <laughs> um but how many of them were slave owners but the majority of them were slave owners mm-hmm. and the reality is that even when they weren't slave owners uh, they needed slave owners in order to be elected and so they followed policies that were deeply complicit in the expansion of slavery.
0: Yeah. Um, and just as an aside here, uh, one, one of the books that I, I thought was uh, really uh, made that point effectively in sort of a, a micro way was uh, a book by a guy named uh, Bill Dusenberry, who uh, wrote a book on uh, James K. Polk as a slave mm-hmm. owner. And it's, it's a very eye opening account of uh, this, this relentless, uh, you know, entrepreneur, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it rem- so something you said earlier reminded me when you when you mentioned uh, young slaves uh, being sort of more malleable and more teachable. That's precisely the sort of slaves that that, that James Polk uh, bought under the table, uh, so that uh, so that Americans wouldn't find out about it. He had yeah. well, a reputation as a slave owner, and there was something else going on quite differently than that. You know, I, I think that readers will be struck uh, by your the, – the way you portray uh, these slaveholding entrepreneurs, uh, the way they uh, construct this, this cotton empire and the way uh, – you've talked about this already but the, the way they uh, develop this extremely efficient system for extracting labor. Uh, From slaves, and you didn't say this word before, but in the book you use the word torture (laughs) to describe, uh, you know, the system of labor extraction, and I I think it might strike readers who have maybe have a passing familiarity with, uh, or or even just an image of the old South, that is so uh, uh, opposite of of the portrayal that you deliver in this book. So, how have we miss this i know not not everybody has certainly uh you know you open the book with uh, the, the story of this wpa interviewer who is talking to the slave who sort of you know tells him you know this was a, a terrible thing and uh it describes uh, some of the things you talk about in the book but how how has our sort of dominant image of the old south how have we missed this what you've talked about in this book
1: Well, I I think if we um, heard about in another country, um, let's say the Taliban uh, taking over uh, part of Afghanistan again, as as they as they are, they're doing. uh, And and let's say we we heard about them uh, grabbing people who didn't follow their rules and carting them off somewhere somewhere and um, ripping the clothes off of them and and beating their backs brutally until they, they bled. But also uh, consented to do what they, what their oppressors said. I, think, I don't think we would have a problem calling it torture, uh, and there were, of course, lots of other things that enslavers uh, did uh, that went even beyond whipping. So I don't think we would call it a torture. I th- call it torture. I, I think excuse me, I think we would call it torture, and I think that in the us. context, we've agreed to not name it for what it was. And we agreed that as a society a very long time ago. I mean, we agreed it well before the Civil War because of the needs of national unity. Um, It was simply not politic to say that what was happening in order to generate uh, 50% of American exports was torture. We simply couldn't say that. Now, there were some people who did say that, uh, such as enslaved people and then when they were occasionally able to escape, uh, they named it for what it was. And there were a few whites who listened to that, and they were abolitionists, and they were seen as radicals uh, by and large and excluded from proper society uh, right up until the very edge of the Civil War. And then after the Civil War, in order to make national reunion go more smoothly, of course, African Americans in the wake of Reconstruction were gradually and yet violently excluded uh, from, from uh, the ability to actually exercise the rights of citizenship and historians, uh, white historians, um, as they're writing what are really the first professional histories of the United States, incorporate these uh, plantation myths, which are being propagated in the wake of the civil war, apologists for the South. And so once again, the idea that, that, uh, all of this wealth that was generated by slavery, uh, was generated by violence, was pushed off the stage. And that that has persisted, I think, a lot longer uh, in our ideas about slavery than we'd like to admit, at least in mainstream American culture.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think there's some, some really complicated reasons for that, uh, and, and some of them, I think, Um, have to do with nation. Some of them have to do with race uh, and the way that African-American pain is perceived. Um, We're starting to get some very interesting, um, literally laboratory studies about how people react uh, when they see um, black skin being pierced by a needle as opposed to white skin being pierced by a needle. I, I think that's probably part of it. But but also part of it, and and I hope that that, uh, my book can go in some small way towards towards rectifying, I think part of it is just that the story hasn't been told in the right way. It's been told in ways that are still muzzled uh, by these needs to see slavery as something that's ultimately uh, nonviolent, that's ultimately paternalistic, that's ultimately not uh, this tremendously violent institution at the heart of American history.
0: Uh, One of the things you discuss at length in your book is how enslaved people coped with this system, with this torture. Um, How did they manage? You put a big emphasis on survival. And you don't sort of – Poo poo survival. You see, survival was under the circumstances uh, almost a heroic feat. Uh, you know, we 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 shouldn't necessarily. Uh, you emphasize. You know, a lot of attention to slavery and slaves is uh, about resistance and escapes and those, those sort of uh, very exceptional things. But you emphasize something a little more uh, mundane, and that is survival. Just you know, how people coped with suffering. How did enslaved people? Just just cope with it.
1: And I, I think for the the people who I've put at the center of the book, um, which is uh, forced migrants, enslaved African-Americans who are moved by force from the communities where they grew up in the older slave states like Maryland and Virginia to the newer slave states, I think for those people, it was a particularly fraught question because they were being put through some, some violent uh, and um, – Often extremely uh, deadly processes, uh, being put into a new disease environment uh, that was much worse, being forced to um, learn um, new kinds of labor uh, and to learn them in this extremely exacting way with the threat of violence hanging over their head, and to do this all while being ripped out away from everything they'd known and cast among strangers. Yeah, and that in those circumstances. Um, Absolutely. Survival is not a given. Survival is itself a kind of um, a kind of resistance and is necessary for everything else that happens. And in a lot of slave societies uh, over time and for a lot of the individuals who were taken to these new cotton states, survival didn't happen. Um, Most Mm -hmm. most slave societies have to be um, uh, continually fed by new imports because the population is continually decreasing. People do not survive. And yet, um, slaves in the American Southwest—the um, majority of them did survive. Uh, the cost of that was often was often very high in all kinds of ways. Uh, but um, one way was that uh, one way that they survived was that they created um, they created ways of helping each other survive. Um, they created a new dialect so they could talk to each other. Uh, what linguists um, talk about now is the. Sort of most common African American dialect uh, was um, by the early twentieth century the prevailing dialect from uh, from more or less uh, New Orleans uh, up to Kentucky, uh, all across the uh, the cotton country and the country in general that had been settled in this great force migration. It's a creation of that great force migration. And people then took it from those states and spread it all across the U.S. and the great mm-hmm. migration. Um, They created all sorts of other um, cultural patterns and elements that that helped them survive, patterns of family, um, and and maybe most importantly, uh, they created uh, a language, not just a dialect, but a way of thinking about what was happening to them, uh, which uh, protected them in certain ways, um, gave them reasons to survive, uh, gave them a a focus uh, and a, a hope that eventually... Um, slavery would be recognized for what it was, uh, and they'd have a chance to to bring it down. And that, in fact, is what happens in the Civil War. Uh, But even as American society in general is um, sweeping the expansion of slavery under the rug as quickly as it can and trying to um, avoid all conflict over this issue, enslaved people are naming it for what it is. They're naming it as the greatest crime that they see in the world around them. Uh, they're naming everything that happens to them as fundamentally wrong, and those who do escape from slavery take that very powerful very searing, very succinct critique out there, and it becomes the the ideological basis, the backbone of just about everything that abolitionists black or white say against slavery
0: mm-hmm. yeah I mean you I think you talk a lot about this concept of of theft that you know uh, black people saw this as stealing. Uh, on a, ma- on a massive scale, uh, you you uh, talk a lot about the interstate slave trade, and, and certainly you're you're not the first person uh, who's done this. You you've referenced uh, earlier in the interview uh, Walter Johnson, who of course has done this. Uh, but you you really talk about the way that the the, the slave trade uh, becomes institutionalized, and, uh, and and it becomes this very well developed cog of of Capitalism, How did entrepreneurs uh, construct this massive infrastructure for transferring so many people over such large distances?
1: Well, they do it bit by bit um, in in one sense, so what uh, one decades uh, slave traders create becomes a foundation. Uh, for another set of innovations uh, in the next generation. So uh, the early domestic slave trade to South Carolina and Georgia uh, is in some ways sort of rudimentary. Uh, People are doing it, uh, slave traders are doing it with um, local financing that they cobbled together from their, their home communities in South Carolina and Georgia. They'll go up to Virginia and buy two or three slaves here, buy two or three slaves there. But later it develops into something much bigger and much more organized and in part. That's because generation after generation, slave traders are able to get the financing that they need from the developing financial institutions of the United States, from the national banks, but also from the other banks that, that work with the national banks. Mm-hmm. And this means that they're tapping into credit flows that stretch all the way across the Atlantic, certainly all the way across the United States. So that combination of new ideas and techniques with new um, flows of financing—everybody, uh, everybody in Silicon Valley knows that—that's how you get a startup going, and that's exactly, <laughs> you know, what what the slave traders of uh, every decade did. Um, they came in, uh, they learned a little bit about the system, often working for another slave trader, and they had an idea uh, for for a new way of doing things so they change they change dramatically over time, um, and we should recognize them uh, as both um, uh, horrifically uh, evil people, um, I, I would argue, but but also as people who are part and parcel of the capitalist the wider capitalist world in which they live. they're not they're not really exceptions. Uh, mm-hmm. they They illustrate the possibilities that existed.
0: Tell us a little bit about how how slaves were valued uh, when I, when I mean that in a very specific way I mean uh, how slave traders and their and, and their customers attached monetary values to different kinds of slaves
1: so we know that we have enough price data on the New Orleans market over time to to recognize certain statistical patterns and what I would say is that, um, as I mentioned before, age is really important uh, mm-hmm. in terms of valuing slaves. Uh, and for men, that's, that's uh, because of their labor potential. And with women, it's because of the labor potential, but also maybe their, uh, their reproductive potential, the ability of a, a slave owner to imagine that they would be able to bear children who would then be the slave owner's property but we can we can find a really clear statistical relationship um, not just between age and price but for men between height and price hmm. and I think height was seen as a proxy as of overall um, overall health and so you might get a six year old you might buy a sixteen year old young man and imagine that that this person would would learn to pick cotton more quickly than let's say a twenty four year old um, but if that person died of malaria uh, two or three months later, that, that wouldn't do the slave owner much good. So they, they needed some way to think about height, uh, to understand height, and, or, or to understand health. And, and height was often a pretty good proxy for that. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we know that um, uh, within a given sort of genetic potential uh, height, um, that it often is a good proxy for someone's health history with women it was a little different it's pretty clear that um, from the letters of uh, uh, slave traders that um, uh, sexual attractiveness was was a big uh, part of the price as well Uh, and it was a big part of the price because um, slave traders could use that uh, to uh, to sell the woman um, to um, male enslavers but it was also it was also Part of the price um, because uh, slave traders and slave owners alike were constantly engaged in um, in sexual assault uh, on women uh, to such an extent that they – I would argue they really couldn't think about buying and selling slaves without that being a part of the equation. Mm-hmm. There's actually some, uh, some pretty good behavioral economic – uh, work that's been done. Again, this is sort of laboratory work, and maybe it only applies to people in the 2010s, but I suspect it has some relevance <laughs> to the 1830s or 1850s. Uh, and that that data, uh, those experiments seem to show that when you've got male test subjects and you're talking to them about um, economic um, questions, you know, should you buy this or buy that? Should you make this investment, which is more risky, or that which is less risky? And then you insert, um, images of women who they consider sexually attractive, what the men do economically, their, their behavior in terms of buying and selling, investing and risking and so on changes fairly dramatically. And they are much more interested, uh, in risky economic behaviors at that point. They're hmm. primed for that kind of behavior. And so, um, cultivating uh, a sort of uh, sexualization of the slave trade was good for the business of slave traders. Uh, the, the promise of rape literally um, made more sales for them.
0: Well, that's really interesting. Uh, you describe uh, the decade, not exactly a decade, but the period from roughly 1829 to 1837 as a particularly horrific one. Uh, for enslaved people um, in a way that, you know, entrepreneurs, you've already described the ways in which these entrepreneurs made slavery a very productive and efficient system. But you argue that, the, you know, the, the decade before 1837 or so was sort of, you know, either the nadir or the you know, apex of this, of this system where they got even more creative mm-hmm. in developing uh, tools to, you know, b- bleed profit out of slaves uh, What's so remarkable about that, about that eight or nine year period?
1: Yeah I, I think um, all of the conditions um, uh, come together in exactly the right way for uh, – to create an environment where um, entrepreneurs and the economist Joseph Schumpeter says, what, what's an entrepreneur? It's somebody who engages in creation and destruction in terms of their economic behavior. Uh, they're able to come up with um, new ways to approach or in, engage in, in market behavior uh, that that radically reshape those markets, um, often destroying older patterns of business. And conditions are perfect for that from the perspective of, of southern enslavers in that decade. Uh, if you look at the international environment, uh, the cotton market uh, for most of that time is is pretty solid. Uh, it's pretty strong. There's a lot of demand. Uh, There's a rapid expansion of the market for textiles, which are made primarily at that point in uh, Northern Britain, and primarily uh, it's expanding in cotton textiles. So there's a lot of demand for their product. Uh, There is a lot of um, credit floating around on the international uh, market, a lot of savings, let's say, that that is looking for an investment home. Uh, And so enslavers just have to find a way to channel it to them and more locally, uh, that's also a decade that's dominated by Andrew Jackson, who himself was a uh, southwestern planter, entrepreneur, par excellence. Um, he had um, not only uh, conquered all this territory in the War of 812 8- for southern enslavers, as president, uh, he uh, finished handing it over to them by expelling Native Americans west or east of the Mississippi across the river to the Indian Territory. Uh, today's Oklahoma. And so this opens up huge, huge new territories for expansion. So all of the possibilities for creating a, a massive wave of excitement and actualization of um, new new businesses, new, uh, new plantations or slave labor camps, if you will, it's all there. Uh, you've got the credit. Uh, you've got the political um, environment lined up in the right way. Uh, you've got the market for the products. The only thing that that stands in the way to some extent uh, is um, perhaps the Second National Bank, which is run by a guy named Nicholas Biddle at that time. Nicholas Biddle is a very – is in many ways um, uh, very, very smart central banker. He's been very successful in the 1820s at um, steadily feeding – uh, national macroeconomic growth um, without letting the economy overheat and primarily he does this by regulating local banks uh, he makes sure that they have enough money to lend but he also makes sure that their practices uh, are not um, uh, are not are not too disruptive to the, that, that they are smart um, sober sorts of practices and uh, Andrew Jackson goes after Nicholas Biddle after he's elected in, in 1829. Uh, and over the course of the next four or five years, removes his ability to control the American financial economy. In other words, uh, it's it's the same as if uh, a president um, would be elected in our day uh, and they would gradually strip the Federal Reserve of its mm-hmm. power to control the American economy. And they would simply say to um, uh, American banks, lend as much as you want. Now, some people might say that's kind of what the Federal Reserve has done at certain points in time, <laughs> uh, and others might argue with that. Um, but but certainly when you have uncontrolled lending practices, which is what you get especially after 1833, uh, then it's possible for a modern financialized economy to overheat very quickly. And that's that's what happens. Um, slave owners buy and sell uh, about – well, they, they move about a quarter million enslaved people to uh, the new states between 1830 and 1837 and they double the production of cotton. And on a micro level, what this means is 250,000 people have to go through what Solomon Northup went through. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have to go through this um, process of, of um, being ripped from everyone they know, even if they're not free people who get kidnapped, uh, they, they are ripped from their families and moved South and West. And then they have to learn how to work in a different way under the constant threat of torture and the constant pressure to increase the speed of what they're making. But eventually enough of them survive and enough of them are able to increase the amount of cotton that they make that between 1830 and 1837, the amount of cotton that the U.S. produces doubles. And this turns out to be too much for the world market to absorb. Mm -hmm. And all of these planters who have borrowed massive amounts of money to radically expand their operations – In serious financial trouble at that time, uh, as as is the global financial economy, which goes into a panic in 1837 and again in
0: 1839. Right. You know, given that that this book really talks about slavery as uh, you know a fundamental drive to the growth of American capitalism, not just the Southern economy, uh, and you make it clear that you know the North uh, benefited. Very tangibly from slavery 's expansion, um, yet many northerners uh, came to oppose the expansion of slavery. Um, how do you explain that
1: I, I think as as I said before you 've got um, white abolitionists who are a very small minority in the north who oppose slavery because of their um, their own reasons, but but one of those reasons is that they 're persuaded. Uh, by what formerly enslaved African Americans tell them they're persuaded that slavery is horrifically evil uh and that it threatens to undermine all of the values uh that they claim to hold dear and so they're you know they're they're faced with this moment where they have to uh they have to mark their uh their convictions to the reality of what's what's going on uh and and many of them i think to their immense credit uh are able to stand up and say um, this thing that everybody's conniving at—it's bad and it needs to be changed. Even though that change will create some pretty fundamental disruptions, so i, I think that's one thing that happens. Uh, but as I said, there is—they're generally speaking a small minority in most northern communities. Um, Oberlin, Ohio, might be the one place <laughs> where they're, they're a majority. Um, uh, so that's that's uh, that's just one place, but eighteen thirty seven and eighteen thirty nine are are i think really fundamental turning points in uh, in u s history um, <clears throat> because because that's the point in time where many northerners begin to realize that um, southern planter entrepreneurs have a very a very serious amount of control over their own economic fortunes. <laughs> And they don't, they don't really seem to care <laughs> about, about how that affects <laughs> Northerners. So if Southerners want to borrow as much money as, as they possibly can, uh, if they want to sort of uh, create a – I mean run wild with speculation because it, it seems that that will benefit them, they don't, they don't seem to consider the, the disruption that that might entail. Uh, For for Northerners, Uh, they simply went ahead and destroyed the Second National Bank. They simply went ahead and forced the Indians out, et cetera, et cetera. So so they began to um, revive at that point much more seriously a a sort of old northern anxiety, which is an anxiety about the political power of southern planters. And so the the argument that the national government is controlled by what uh, some call a uh, for instance, um, John Palfrey, this this um, uh, Harvard professor, magazine editor, uh, et cetera, uh, this, guy, this kind of quintal, quintessential northerner who's actually related to southern planters. He starts to refer to what he calls a slave power, capital S, capital, mm-hmm. capital P, a slave power <clears throat> that is right. directing the politics uh, of of the U.S., Uh, Directing the political economy in a way that is fundamentally opposed to the benefit of and the further development of the north. Now, I think we could say functionally, you know, uh, 1840s is also the point where we really start to see the northern economy growing of its own momentum, not being completely connected to the ups and downs of the cotton market, starting to develop industries that are not directly tied to the cotton economy Uh, before the 1840s. Um, virtually all um, northern industry of note uh, had some kind of pretty direct connection to the cotton account- economy, like weaving cotton into cloth, which was mm-hmm. then sold back to southern plantations. Things like that. After 1840, um, other things start to spring up, and they're they're much more um, uh, oriented towards a a northern market. So the northern economy has achieved what what uh, 1950s economists would call a takeoff point. Uh, where it can grow on its own. And so I think that that fact permits northerners at a very deep level to start to think about reining in the growth uh, of the Southern plantation complex. Well,
0: we're almost out of time, but I, I do want to wrap this up by kind of bringing us back to something you talk about in your introduction. And that is that the history that you're talking about, the history of slavery is not just something that 's of you know antiquarian interest that the history of slavery matters, and the way that we remember that history you know the memory of, of how we talk about slavery matters today, what do you think is the significance uh, today of this history that you're that you 're telling
1: well I, I would I would point to three um, Three questions, let's put it that way, that have been in the news uh, over the last six months, and and all of these show the way in which we are all directly affected by by a the history of slavery's effects and b the effects of how we understand it. Uh, and the first one, you know, most obviously, I would point to to uh, Ferguson and the debates that have followed the shooting of Michael Brown uh, mm-hmm. because. Um, the way in which uh african americans are policed today um i think many people would argue and I, I think with um certainly with some salience is directly shaped by slavery and by anxieties ab- about the possibility of slave revolt uh the possibilities of uh enslaved people's violence and reaction to the violence that was being done to them and i think um, the way that African-Americans have been policed has always been different, and it continues to be different, and we're still coming to grips with that as a society. The second thing uh, I would point to is um, – the so, so that's, that's the question of sort of legal process, right?
0: Mm-hmm. There's
1: a question about access, um, whether or not uh, African-Americans uh, have access to the, the full fruits of uh, American possibilities. And this is a question that, that at least in you know some circles, was being discussed very heavily uh, last summer, especially following the um, the publication of uh, a long article by by uh, Ta Nehisi Coates in the Atlantic, which once again brought up the question of reparations for slavery and the way that um, both ongoing processes and sort of um, legacy um, wealth or the lack of legacy wealth continue to constrain uh, the opportunity african americans for full progress and and um you know aside to that that's that's really important is is the ways in which um, that um that limited access for african americans um helps helps some americans some white americans but it also hurts a lot of other white americans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then and then the third thing i would say is is related to, or, or was brought into the news by the publication of Thomas Piketty's book on on wealth and inequality. And that's it. that brings up even bigger questions of, of the legacy of slavery and the way that wealth is distributed in this country uh, and the ways in which the wealth of slavery uh, may still be present and visible among us as, as accumulations of, uh, of value uh, and power in the hands of some people and not in the hands of other people. And that again, is something which doesn 't just affect african Americans it, it affects all people in the United States so those are those are just three they 're not i wouldn 't call them small ways because they 're all about huge <laughs> questions, but those are those are three i think pretty clear ways in which we are still dealing um, we 're still dealing with slavery or you know perhaps in some ways not dealing with slavery right or perhaps should be dealing with slavery, and thinking about the history of slavery as we understand current problems uh of distribution of access and of of process
0: uh, well ed uh we've taken up uh over an hour of your life um so i know you just published this terrific book uh so please forgive the next question uh, which is the last one but uh, what is what is next for you so i
1: have a couple of parts.
0: besides just basking in the glow of <laughs> the glory the fame the wealth that's coming your way
1: <laughs> hmm uh well, if if you promise, that's what's coming. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think um, I've got a couple of projects that are that are on the stove, um, which I'm trying to to heat up um, as we speak. One of them is a, um, a comprehensive crowdsourced database of runaway slave ads, uh, which there are tens of thousands in um, uh, American newspapers that survive from the slavery era, and some people might be familiar with this. In, others not, but when an enslaved person ran away, often uh, their their owner placed an ad uh, saying, hey, look out for this man or woman. Here's a physical description. Sometimes it'll say how they act, where I think they might be going, what they they might be wearing. And in a way, that's as close to a detailed census as uh, our, our census return or document or whatever, as we're going to be able to get on, on most enslaved people. So there's a lot of information uh, about uh, individuals and how they resisted and how they attempted to shape their own lives in those um, ads, but there's no comprehensive um, database of them. So, uh, along with a, a team of other people, um, like uh, uh, several several folks at Cornell and also uh, Josh Rothman at the University of Alabama and Molly Mitchell at the University of New Orleans, we're trying to create a, um, a database which we think might end up containing 50,000, 100,000, mm. we're not sure how many Individuals, and we're trying to engage the broader public in, in helping us to to process these documents. That's one thing that I've I've got going on, and I've got I've got a couple other uh, ideas. I mean, certainly there's a book idea that could come from that, and a couple of other book ideas that I have. But um, I'm still I'm still putting the ingredients together for those.
0: All right. Well, uh, Ed Baptist, I want to thank you very much for uh, discussing this book with us today. Thanks, Dan. You bet. So once again this is dan kilbride from new books in american studies we've been talking with ed baptist about his book the half has never been told slavery and the making of american capitalism published by basic books and you'll see an icon on the screen if you click to it it'll take you right to the amazon page and uh, you can contribute to uh, ed baptist retirement fund uh, <laughs> by buying this terrific book so uh this is new books in american studies signing off so long everybody